Our first scripture this morning comes from the Gospel of Matthew, chapter 5, verses 21 to 37. Listen now for God's word to us. You have heard that it was said to those of ancient times, You shall not murder, and whoever murders shall be liable to judgment. But I say to you that if you are angry with a brother or sister, you will be liable to judgment. And if you insult a brother or sister, you will be liable to the council. And if you say, you fool, you will be liable to the hell of fire. So when you are offering your gift at the altar, if you remember that your brother or sister has something against you, leave your gift there before the altar and go. First be reconciled to your brother or sister. Then come and offer your gift. Come to terms quickly with your accuser while you are on the way to court with him. Or your accuser may hand you over to the judge, and the judge to the guard, and you will be thrown into prison. Truly I tell you, you will never get out until you have paid the last penny. You've heard that it was said you shall not commit adultery, but I say to you that anyone who looks at a woman with lust has already committed adultery with her in his heart. If your right eye causes you to sin, tear it out and throw it away. It is better for you to lose one of your members than for your whole body to be thrown into hell. And if your right hand causes you to sin, cut it off and throw it away. It is better for you to lose one of your members than for your whole body to go into hell. It was also said, whoever divorces his wife, let him give her a certificate of divorce. But I say to you that anyone who divorces his wife except on the ground of, ground of unchastity causes her to commit adultery. And whoever marries a divorced woman commits adultery. Again, you have heard that it was said to those of ancient times, you shall not swear falsely, but carry out the vows that you have made to the Lord. But I say to you, do not swear at all, either by heaven, for it is the throne of God, or by the earth, for it is his footstool, or by Jerusalem, for it is the city of the great king. And do not swear by your head, for you cannot make one hair white or black. Let your word be yes, yes, or no, no. Anything more than this comes from the evil one. This is the word of the Lord. So we've been reading the Sermon on the Mount the past couple weeks. We started on this about two weeks ago with the Beatitudes, and then last week was kind of the first main section of Jesus' teaching. And now we, we really get to the meat of the Sermon on the Mount. This is where Jesus really starts to get serious and a heck of a lot less palatable, right? Things get a little difficult. Now today's passages is what, uh, is what scholars refer to as the antitheses. It's the series of teachings with that familiar phrasing, you have heard that it was said, but I say to you. And these are Jesus' musings on the law of Moses and teaching his followers about how it applies to them. And many of us have grown up with, with an understanding of the laws of the Old Testament as these kind of outdated things or in some way rendered unnecessary by the grace that we now experience in Jesus Christ. The common suggestion or even accusation, was that so many people had become so legalistic and so blind to God's goodness that they were 
in some sense, slaves to the law or slaves to their legalism, their, their in, insane interpretation of the law, demanding that everyone act in accord with their particular understanding of it. And interestingly, Jesus, in this passage, comes across as somewhat realistic, uh, sorry, legalistic himself, according to those standards. But, of course, we can step back and say that with regard to the law, we know that things have definitely changed in some sense. I mean, even, even modern-day Jews don't follow every single letter of the law. You know, they, that is, you know, they'll try to live um, in a certain sense uh, in a way that is in accord with the spirit of the law, that is in, this, in, this, in accord with the spirit of God. And even from the very beginning, when the law was first given, it was always kind of flexible. There was always, it was always open to new interpretation based on the new context that God's people found themselves in. Because to them and to us, God's word is alive. Hebrews tells us that it is living and active. It was never meant to be static. And in case we forgot about how last week Jesus told us that he did not come to abolish the law, but to fulfill it. His, teaching this, his teachings this week drive home that point rather forcefully. In the span of these 18 verses, he teaches about murder, hatred, reconciliation, adultery, lust, bodily dismemberment, divorce, adultery, again, vows, and swearing falsely. All of that in a very short amount of time. And this is only the first half of the antitheses. So there's more coming next week. Buckle up. <laughs> and the thing that can often take us by surprise about these verses is how harsh Jesus can sound at times. It doesn't exactly jive with, with the image that a lot of us might have of Jesus. might have us thinking, well, what happened to grace, Jesus? You know, where's the mercy? Where's the understanding? You know, Jesus, you're, you're kind of sounding like a Pharisee here, and we're not cool with that. I mean, he's talking about gouging out eyes and cutting off hands if they cause us to sin because, he says, it's better for you to lose one of your members than for your whole body to be thrown into hell. It's pretty serious stuff. And these, are the type of the, these are the types of verses that make even the staunchest of biblical literalists do some fancy interpretive square dancing to work their way around what Jesus is actually saying here. Because I think most of us, can read this and understand pretty quickly that Jesus is speaking in hyperbole, right? That he's intentionally using this overly exaggerated language and even shocking language in order to evoke strong feelings and strong emotion, strong reactions. So while we hopefully understand that Jesus doesn't actually intend for us to gouge out our eyes and cut off our hands, it should, at the very least, say something to us about how important these teachings are to Jesus, and for him, how important it is for his followers to understand them. In other words, Jesus is saying, listen up, this stuff matters. This is serious. But this gets us, I think, to what the point of the whole, the law, what the point of it might be, and what Jesus' take on the law might be. I think it's helpful to notice that all of these teachings that Jesus gives are relational. That is to say, they are about our relationships with those around us. And while they are, to be sure, incredibly strict, they are not this 
list of arbitrary rules that come across as, you know, coldly religious, right? They, they, have, they have to do with how we treat each other, how we respect one another, how we relate to each other. And in every case, Jesus takes an existing law, one from the Old Testament, the law of Moses, and he broadens its scope to make it uh, more difficult, actually, to live, to live out. He says it's not simply enough to refrain from murder. For most of us, that's easy, right? But he points us to the ways that our hateful thoughts and our words about others are their own form of murder, equally deadly in Jesus' eyes. And he's so emphatic on this point that he, he says that to even to call someone a fool is to make you liable to the fire of hell. Now, I've been told a lot in my life that I might be going to hell, but I don't remember anyone ever listing this among the reasons for why I might be going there. This was never among the litany of sins, calling someone a fool that would, that would have me end up in the hellfire. But apparently for Jesus, it's a pretty big one. And again, he says, it's, it's not enough to simply avoid committing adultery. He says that to objectify a person by seeing them only as objects for our sexual gratification is equally sinful. And in a sex-obsessed culture like ours, it's probably best that we listen very carefully to what he's saying here. And again, it's not enough that we not break our oaths and promises, but he commands that we speak truthfully in everything that we say, that our yes be a yes and our no be a no, no matter how small or insignificant it may be. The great irony of these teachings, I think, is, is the way that they are often received and taught by Christians, by us. Now, every preacher knows that, that he or she loses control. of We lose control of our words once they are spoken, once they are received. We can't control how they are heard and understood by others, especially now that they're on the Internet, right? They can be taken any number of ways with unforeseen and unintended consequences. They are no longer our own. They become yours. And unfortunately for Jesus, his words are no less immune. I mean, I've heard some pretty amazing sermons about this stuff, and I, I use amazing very liberally. Um, I've heard sermons detailing the things that you can and cannot call a person without making you subject to the, the hellfires. For instance, one of the interesting things about this text is that um, Jesus uses this, this Greek word that is actually a transliterated Aramaic word. The word is raka. So if you've ever read the King James Version, maybe you've seen where it says raka. You, you can't say raka. And so translators for a long time have argued about the best way to translate this Aramaic word. But I mean, it basically means something along the lines of empty-headed or vain or foolish, idiot, something along those lines. And I actually heard someone in a sermon once say that you're, allowed, you're actually allowed to call someone a fool if they're being a fool, but you could never use this word raka. I don't know why you would use that word, Raka, but we're not allowed to because there's apparently something especially egregious about that particular Aramaic word. In this, the, in this particular sermon, the preacher quoted the psalm. It may be familiar to you. The fool says in his heart, there is no God. So, he said, it's okay for us to call atheists and unrepentant sinners fools because that's what the Bible calls them. But we can't say Raka to them because that would be something terrible for some reason, even though that word means absolutely nothing to us. We're not allowed to say that particular word. 
Likewise, I've heard sermons uh, trying to define exactly what lust is and is not, literally to the point of setting an amount of time that a man is allowed to admire a woman in a bathing suit before it becomes lust. So at a particular point, it cuts off. Okay, now it's lust. Now that's a sin. It's amazing the lengths that we'll go to to determine what constitutes proper biblical living and what does not. And not surprisingly, when we do this, we, we almost always find ourselves on the right side of the dividing lines, don't we? It's those other people who aren't living right. They're not living up to the standard. What these interpretations and what we in general often fail to realize is that just like the original law given to Moses, these new laws or Jesus's understandings of these laws for us have, have never been about telling outsiders, that is non-Christians, non-believers, it's never been about telling them how to live their lives. It's about how we live our lives in relation to each other and to them. It's about how we, those who would dare to have the audacity to call ourselves the people of God, how we treat others so that they might experience and see our, that through our good works, they might experience and see God's goodness, that God's grace might shine through us because we live in this particular way. Not by obsessing over what does and does not constitute sin, and arrogantly proclaiming to the rest of the world when they're not making the cut, but in how we treat each other. Each of these teachings is about relationships. It's about our relationships. God cares deeply about our relationships. And this may sound like a truism, but I think it's worth mentioning again because it reminds us of the character of the God that we worship. Of course God cares about relationships, because God is relationship. And God calls us to relationship. And our relationships are, in a sense, a form of worship that is pleasing to God. And Jesus tells us that this is what it means to hunger and to thirst for righteousness. You remember in the Beatitudes, Jesus said, Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness. And now he's telling us this is what it looks like. So Friday, of course, was Valentine's Day. You know, that that day out of the year where we all go crazy about love and, and shower our loved ones with, with candy and gifts and all the sorts of different things to make them feel loved and appreciated. I don't know about you. I, I've never really been into Valentine's Day that much, but, but I also don't want to be the Grinch who, who ruins Valentine's Day or tries to make it this, you know, terrible thing. I'll say that the most romantic I ever got on Valentine's Day was when I took Mary to a lovely candlelit dinner at Chick-fil-A. <laughs> True story. It's our first Valentine's Day together, and God bless her, she loved it, or <laughs> at least she played along, <laughs> and that's when I knew <laughs> she was the one, because I could get away with that. <laughs> so so we, we've never been too big on Valentine's Day. I mean, it's, it's, just, it's not a big deal for us, but I get why it is for some people. I, I totally understand, and don't judge, okay? Hear, hear that. I get why it can be an important day for people. It's nice to be reminded that someone loves you. It's nice to be reminded that someone cares for you and, and for them to do some kind of public display to say to other people, hey, I care about this person. That's, that's a good thing. If it feels good. And even if it's, you know, a mostly made up holiday, it can have very real value in people's relationships. The problem, I think, with Valentine's Day is that 
many people see it as a, as a way of in somehow try, trying to fix a bad relationship, right? Where things aren't going well, well, well I'll, just, I'll just get some candy and flowers and we'll go out to eat and, and then everything will be fine. Well, it'll be great. You know, it, it's a way of getting off the hook, if even only for one day, you know, for not having that kind of, for not showing that kind of love and affection the other 364 days out of the year. In fact, I read, I read this statistic the other day, very sobering statistic that it said that 51% of the women that they polled say that they will end their relationships if they don't receive something on Valentine's Day. 51%. Isn't that crazy? And at first, my first reaction, to be quite honest, was, wow, women are shallow, you know? But I thought about it, <laughs> recanting from that, okay? <laughs> thought about it, I think instead it's more indicative of our overall failure as a society to know how to love and treat each other well. It shouldn't surprise us that that 51% is almost, almost lines up perfectly with the divorce rate, right? That, that we, are, we have such difficulties with fostering these good and healthy relationships that we don't know how to properly love each other all the time. Because it's messy, it's difficult. Relationships are really hard work. It doesn't matter if it's a relationship that you're born into, whether it's your family, or if it's, uh, you know, the person you choose to spend the rest of your life with. They're always difficult. And that word, love, gets tossed around a lot. We too easily confuse love for romantic feelings or other kind of emotions that we have for a person. And thankfully, though, there are people in our lives and, and even in this very sanctuary whose long and loving marriages bear testimony to the fact that love is so much more than that and requires so much more than that. I, I read this great quote on, on an article online this week. It, says, it said this, Romantic love is a feeling. Christian love is a committed practice, an ongoing daily discipline. Romantic love is exciting but fleeting. Christian love is backbreaking and requires more of, much more of us than most of us are willing to give. Romantic love practically demands an equal response from the object of our affection. Christian love gives itself away freely and fully, regardless of the inevitable consequences for the giver. This is the type of love that we first received from Jesus Christ. And it's the type of love that he calls us to in the Sermon on the Mount. I can understand how someone who does not have the eyes of faith might see Jesus' teachings here as exactly the problem they have with religion, right? Because it's all about acting a certain way. And if you don't act this way, you're on the fast track to damnation. And I can't say that I blame them for, for thinking that way because... I think in a lot of ways we've allowed that to become the dominant narrative of what Christianity looks like in our culture. That it's more about living up to this certain standard than showing radical love for our neighbors. It's more about talking about all the ways that other people are sinning than by loving them and serving them sacrificially the way Christ has called us to. One of, if not the fastest growing religious identity in our country right now, is what we call the nuns. These are people who don't associate or affiliate with any particular religion or denomination. They say none. And many of whom, many of these people, 
will identify themselves as spiritual but not religious. I'm sure you've, you've heard this language before. Because in our culture, religion has almost become a dirty word. What, what people really want and what they seek more than anything is connection. They seek relationship. They seek affection. And Jesus here teaches us that our religion is relationship. That these are not two separate things. At least they're not supposed to be. This new law that Jesus gives us is not simply about doing what he says because he said so, although obedience does matter. In fact, there's something about what Jesus teaches that really isn't even all that new because love is the law and that always has been. From the very beginning when God gave the law, it was always about how to love God and how to love your neighbor. This is what we're called to. Real, messy, complicated, painful, sacrificial love. This is our law. Not that we would use these commandments as a litmus test to define who's in and who's out, but that these commandments might point us to the ways to live faithfully and lovingly so that we might shine the light of our Savior into the dark places. This is our law. Amen.